0: All right, well, we are in our second message during our Advent series on Spectacular Sons Born to Save the World. Today, we're looking at Moses, and we're gonna look at two passages, his birth and then his death. So if you can look to, first of all, Exodus chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 2, and then our second place will be Deuteronomy 34, 7 and 12. So beginning in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. That's Moses' birth. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Verses 7 through 12. This is Moses' death. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, help us not to be um, blind, self-congratulating Pharisees, Lord, as they look so that we could see what was concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. For we prayed in your Son's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So, the premise of this series is that Jesus Christ wasn't the first Son that was born to save the world. God had actually sent many forerunners into the world to show what he would accomplish. Um, This is the story of human history. We looked at Genesis 3.15 briefly last week, that the offspring of the woman would come and crush the dragon's head. And so profound was that first promise that it set the expectation for all of human history. Remember, immediately, Eve's started looking for the son. I have a son uh, born from the Lord. And then Lamech, Noah's father, said the same thing. Well, maybe this son will bring relief. Last week, we saw how Isaac was a spectacular son. He was taken up to Mount Moriah to be a human sacrifice. but Of course, he was spared, but a later son would not be likewise, there have been many spectacular sons born to the race of men. Noah was born to save the world from the flood, Genesis 5, 28 and 29. Joseph was born to save the world from famine, Genesis 45, 5. Jeremiah was born to be a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah 1, 5. Paul the apostle was born to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, Galatians 1, 15 through 16. But all of these sons are only shadows of the one spectacular son sent from heaven. But it's important to study these sons because in them, we actually see a fuller picture of what Jesus came to accomplish. So last week, we looked at Isaac. This morning, we're looking at Moses. God willing, next week, we'll look at Solomon. So let's look first at the spectacular birth of Moses. But I I want us to start where we left off last week. So if you could turn with me to to Genesis 22. After the the service last week, a teenager came up to me, and I love this because that means you guys are listening, um, and asked if this angel of the Lord that spared Isaac, if that was Christ himself. Let's look again at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So how do we know that this angel of the Lord is Christ? It's one thing to say it. It's, one thing, it's another thing to see it. Well, first, on the one hand, this angel of the Lord distinguishes himself um, from God by speaking about God in the third person. Notice halfway through verse 12, he says, Now I know that you fear God. However, on the other hand, he Identifies himself with God by speaking in the first person, halfway through verse 12, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So, how can he speak in both ways? Well, there's only one solution. He is simultaneously the one who is sent from God, the angel of the Lord, and he is equal with the one who sent him, the Lord himself. Who fits that description? Only the Son of God. Only Christ. Now, we'll come back to that. That's actually important. What does he promise Abraham? Look at verses 15 and 18, because this sets up the rest of redemptive history. The angel Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is is the renewal of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the reason why that's relevant for us is because all of us today who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ belong to that same Abrahamic covenant, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. We just heard that whole Advent reading. Our gospel starts all the way back in Genesis. We're Christians today because God is still fulfilling that promise to Abraham. What happened after this? Well, let's consider the timeline from from Isaac to Moses, Um, from Genesis 15, uh, where God cut the covenant with Abraham, until the point when Israel enters into Egypt is about 215 years. Now, during that time, Isaac and Rebekah give birth to Jacob and Esau. And we see the same type of division that happened between Ishmael, and Isaac. God chose Jacob to bless him, and he rejected Esau. This is what we read in the New Testament. Romans 9.13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Now, this may just be an aside, but I think this is an important aside. Why does God make statements like that? Doesn't God realize how harsh that sounds? It only sounds harsh to sinners. Do you realize that that verse never sounds harsh to the angels who are in heaven? It only sounds like tender mercy that God would ever set his affections on Jacob. Loved ones, Jacob was no better than Esau. He was born a deceiver. And he was a rebellious sinner. He was saved by grace alone. We should not at all be shocked that God rejected Esau. We should be shocked that God would ever love Jacob. As we approach this Advent season, we need to remember that God came into the world to save wicked, rebellious, undeserving sinners just like us. That's the gospel, that God loves sinners, wicked, undeserving, rebellious sinners, said this before, but I'm going to say it again. If you truly knew how bad I was, you would not love me, let alone let me be your pastor. And if I knew truly how bad you were, I would not love you, let alone want to pastor you. But God knows all. God knows all and he still loves us. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we were cleaned up, before we had the righteousness of Christ, while we were the dregs, the worms, the insects of culture, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. Now after this, Jacob, this sinner that God loved, And his wives gave birth to the 12 patriarchs, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is where Joseph comes into picture. Now, he who has ears, let him hear. Joseph was Jacob's son that he loved more than any of his other sons. Genesis 37.3. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Genesis 37.4. Joseph was betrayed to slave traders for 20 shekels of silver. Genesis 37.28. And God was behind all of this. Psalm 105.16 and 17 says that God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread. And he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. This is the narrative in the book of Genesis. And then what we find is that Joseph finds himself in Egypt in prison. Pharaoh brings him out of prison to interpret his dreams. God, he told Pharaoh, was going to send a worldwide famine, Genesis 41, 1 through 36. And what happened after that? Pharaoh promoted him and had him sit at the right hand of the king in Egypt and renamed him Zaphonath-Paneah, which means, in Egyptian, the savior of the world. Genesis forty one forty five. you see, Joseph was another spectacular son. By God's grace, he saved not only all of Israel, but all the world by providing for them during the famine. Now, that brings us up to the book of Exodus, so turn with me there. Now, between the time of Israel entering into Egypt and the time of their Exodus in chapter 15 was about 215 years. Now, Spurgeon says of this time between the closing of Genesis and the closing of Exodus that there was a long pause and a dreary silence. No prophet spoke in Jehovah's name, no voice of God in priestly oracle was heard, but all was silent while Israel dwelt in Egypt. 215 years of not hearing from God, a little bit less. We read in, in verse 8, now there was a rose, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But this didn't work. Israel continued to be fruitful, multiply, and Egypt continued to decrease. And so, Pharaoh, that dragon, that seed of the serpent incarnate, he established his final solution. He ordered that all of the midwives would kill the first, uh, the Hebrew male child that exited the womb, verse 16. But of course, that didn't work because the midwives disobeyed him. And he says in verse 22 Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son, that is born to the Hebrews, she shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And this was the Holocaust of the ancient world. Baby boys were being ripped from their mother's breast and being cast into the Nile to be fed to the crocodiles. Just like before the flood, the seed of the woman was in danger of being extinct. And right at this point, God sent a spectacular son into the world when hope was lost. Look at verse look at chapter two, verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the river bank. Now what's fascinating about this account is that the Hebrew word for basket here is only used in this place and of the ark that saved Noah and his family. Moses was placed in an ark. Just as the church was saved through Noah's day in an ark, so the church in Moses' day would be saved through that little ark in the Nile. This is reinforced by Moses' name. His name means to draw out. Look at halfway through verse 10. Pharaoh's daughter found him and adopted him as her own, and she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And this is prophetic of the Red Sea crossing. Michael Morales says here, quote, his salvation out of the waters becomes a prophetic sign of his future role in drawing Israel out of the waters of the sea. Now, why did God send this spectacular son? Because halfway through verse 24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Loved ones, this is the same reason why God sent his son into the world, because he remembered his covenant. The gospel isn't some haphazardly plan that God kind of chalked together as plan B when the world looked like it was going to pot. The gospel is God's eternal covenant promise. Genesis 3.15, God promised that a one would be born of the offspring of the woman. That's the virgin birth. Christ came. God promised through Abraham his covenant that he would bless the nation's through his family. And Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Advent. The arrival of Jesus Christ is proof that God never breaks his word. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Pharaoh could not destroy God's covenant in Moses' day, and neither can anything happening in the world today. Doesn't matter if it looks hopeless. It doesn't matter if another holocaust shows up tomorrow on the headlines. The collapse of the nations wouldn't stop God making his promise on his covenant. If the dragon looks like he's about to swallow the church whole, then just watch, wait, and see what happens next. God's spectacular son will act. He will save. That's why he was born. That's why he came into the world. So let's look at the spectacular biography of, of Moses. And I want to look at The lens of Moses' life through his obituary. Uh, Turn back to Deuteronomy 34. Last week, we, we saw that Isaac was a type of Christ because of how he was brought forth as a human sacrifice, he was a type of Christ's priestly office. Shorter Catechism, question 23 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer, in his, one, in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. So Isaac was a type of Christ's priestly office, but Moses here is a type of his prophetic office. Shorter Catechism, question 24, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? answer, In revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Now look at what it says about Moses in verse 10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In other words, there was no prophet like Moses in the entire Old Testament. God knew him face to face as the verse says. And this began back in Exodus 3 when God appeared to him on Mount Horeb in the burning bush and he revealed to him his plan to save Israel. And he does this again and again and again. We've had the privilege of going through the book of Exodus. Do you realize that since Exodus 3... There's not been one chapter where God doesn't directly speak to Moses. I went through the whole book. I only found like three chapters where Moses then starts talking to the people of Israel to direct them how to build the tabernacle, where it seems like God is not speaking there. But even there, he's relaying the words of God that he received from him to the people. God is speaking to him everywhere. Spurgeon says here, Quote, sometimes God spoke to Noah, or he spoke to Abraham or Elijah, but it was upon occasions only. But with Moses, the Lord spoke continually. And this is especially seen when Israel arrives at Mount Sinai in chapter 19, and God invites Moses up to the top of the mountain, and for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses speaks to God, and it says in chapter 34, 28, that he neither ate bread or drank water. Why does it add that little tidbit there? Because his his bread and his water was communion with God. That's what his food and drink were. Furthermore, whenever Moses would go to the tent of the meeting... Exodus 33, 9 says that the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So during these regular encounters with the Lord, which took place over 40 years, God revealed to Moses Everything that we find in the first five books of our Bibles. The creation, the record of creation, the fall, the covenant of grace, the flood, the calling of Abraham, Israel's slavery, the Ten Commandments, the pattern of the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the civil code of Israel. All the promises and all the threatenings God revealed to Moses. He revealed to Moses everything that Israel would need for their family life, for their religious life, and for their civil order. Moses was, humanly speaking, the author of the entire Old Covenant. He was the prophetic light of the ancient world. He revealed to all mankind the will of God for our salvation. I mean... We take, we take that for granted because we have a finished product, right? We have all 66 books of the Bible. But put yourself in Israel's shoes when they enter into Egypt. Now, they had you know a verbal tradition, but Israel was in darkness. They had no special revelation that was continued on in, in written form. Dear congregation, you have to feel the gravity of this. I think that many evangelicals are unbalanced in the way that we view the, the prophet and priest and, and kingly offices of Christ. I, I know for myself, I tend to elevate the, the priestly office of Christ, that he was the sacrifice for our sins. And I, I tend to de-emphasize the prophetic office, that he revealed the will of God for our salvation. But, but that's entirely wrong. Um, to give an example... It's true that Isaac, not Moses, was brought to Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. But how do we know about it? We know about it because of Moses. We know about it through his prophetic office. It's, it's kind of like, well, which, which one do I want, the priestly office or the prophetic office? Well, that's kind of like being 30,000 feet up saying, which wing do I want, the right hand or the left hand? You need both. Both. Children, boys and girls, imagine if your parents never taught you anything. Imagine that the function of teaching wasn't a thing. That You didn't learn your ABCs, that you didn't learn how to cleanse yourself, that you didn't know what to eat and what not to eat. That you didn't know how to think. If you made it past infancy, what type of human being would you be? A, rabbit. a what? A, a rabbit? Well, you'd certainly be a beast, and that would be my point. You'd be a mindless beast, no better than a rabbit. congregation, without the prophetic office, that's how we would be. We'd be like beasts. We'd have no saving knowledge of God. We'd have no accurate knowledge of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd have no blessed and happy knowledge of God's covenants, no proper understanding for our purpose in life, no knowledge about a sacrifice for sins, no hope for what God is going to do in the future. We'd be in spiritual darkness. But this spectacular son brought light into the world. He brought the knowledge of God for our salvation in the world. That's why our text says that there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. But it raises the question, who was it precisely that gave Moses this revelation. Who taught Moses? Turn back to Exodus chapter three, verse two. This is Moses' first encounter with the Lord. We're asking the question, who taught Moses? Exodus chapter three, verse two. What does it say there? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The same angel who intervened at the sacrifice of Isaac is here instructing Moses. This is this is no one but the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the pre-incarnate Son of God. Jesus did not begin his prophetic ministry when he was born. First Peter 1:11 says that the prophet spoke through the Spirit of Christ. The prophets were getting all of their prophetic utterances from Christ himself. Who do you think it was that met with Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments? Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. This is where Stephen is rehearsing all of Israel's redemptive history to the Pharisees. And he tells us who gave the law to Moses. Acts chapter 7, 37 and 38. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, the angel of the Lord, Who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles, the law to give to us. Christ gave the law to Moses. As an aside, we should see how foolish it is whenever we pit Jesus against the law. Jesus is the one who gave the law, he's not merely a prophet, he's the prophet of prophets. Moses was, was great precisely because the words that he spoke came from the Son of God himself. <clears throat> now, how did Israel receive all of these prophetic words from Moses? Did they rush to hear him? Did they eagerly eat up? His words, did they cry out for more? Did they, did they say with grateful hearts, give us more? No, they hated him for it. And they over and over again rebelled against him. In Exodus 17, 4, they wanted to stone him. In Numbers 14, 4, they wanted to choose new leadership and go back to Egypt. In Numbers 12, his own brother and sister opposed him. In Numbers 16, Korah mustered up evil men and attempted a coup, accusing Moses of exalting himself above the assembly. In that same passage where Stephen recites Israel's history in Acts 7.39, he says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They hated the prophetic word that came from Moses. How did Moses respond? The scripture says he was the meekest man on all the earth. He patiently bore it again and again, except for one incident at the rock where he struck the rock in Numbers 20. Moses' behavior towards Israel was exemplary. As Spurgeon says here, Quote, he was so meek and gentle that for 40 years, he bore with the most rebellious and provoking nation that ever existed. He loved the people of Israel even when they deserved it the least. The, the pinnacle example of this is when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and down at the base of the mountain, the children of Israel make the golden calf. You have to understand what's happening there theologically. When when Moses is receiving the covenant with God, God is marrying Israel and bringing himself to him. And at that exact moment, Israel is committing adultery on her husband at the base of the mountain. And God is so angry Exodus 32, 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So so God tells Moses, I'm gonna destroy them. They committed adultery on my wedding night and I'm gonna start over with you. And Moses says, please don't do that. He intercedes for Israel and he offers up his own life in place of theirs. Exodus 32, 32, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please, please, blot me out of your book that you have written. Truly, Moses was a spectacular son. Though Israel continually, um, rebelled against them, he continually interceded and bore patiently with them and loved them, even offering up his own life to save them. That brings us then to our last point, the true and better Moses. Again, it's so clear, isn't it? God raised up Moses in order to point us to this other spectacular son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses, indeed, was the greatest prophet of the ancient world, but there was a better one. Consider 10 ways how Jesus far surpasses Moses. Number one, as a prophet, Moses was only a man, but Jesus was the God-man. John 1.1, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Number two, As a prophet, whenever Moses spoke, he always had to say, thus says the Lord. But whenever Jesus spoke, he spoke as the Lord. John 4.26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Number three, as a prophet, Moses was a servant of God. But Jesus is the son of God. Hebrews 3.5, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Number four, Moses was the founder of the old covenant, humanly speaking, but Jesus is the founder of the new covenant. Hebrews 8.6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Number five, Moses had such an overflowing portion of the Spirit of God that God was able to take from him and place it on 70 elders in Numbers 11.35. But God gave the Spirit to Christ without measure. John 3:34 and he pours out that spirit on all of us who believe. John 7 7:37 7, through 39. Number 6. Moses performed the greatest miracles in the ancient world, didn't he? The parting of the Red Sea, the turning of the Nile into blood, but but Jesus Performed the greatest miracles in the universe. He rose from the dead. He, he reconciles sinners with God. He regenerates us and brings us back from the dead and raises us up into heavenly places. John 21, 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. Oh, to get to glory and to read the books of the, of the works that Jesus accomplished. Number seven, as a prophet, Moses didn't always obey the Lord, but Jesus obeyed the Lord all the way to death. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One more. Number eight. Moses was meeker than any other man, but he was not able to bear the burden of Israel. In numbers 11:12 he said, "Did I he says this to the Lord, did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms?" He was unable to bear the burdens of Israel, but Jesus bears the burdens of all of his people. Psalm 68, 19, praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Isn't that one of your greatest comforts when you're going through it? That you're promised that you cast all of your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He's able to bear up underneath it. Number nine, Moses so loved the people of Israel. That he proposed himself to be a sacrifice for them for their sin. Exodus 32, 32. But the Father so loves us that he actually made Christ a sacrifice for our sins. First John 4:10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. To be a propitiation for our sins. And finally, number 10. As a prophet, Moses died. Never to be with Israel again until the next world. But Christ, our prophet, will never leave us. These are some of the final words he said in Matthew 28, 20, that behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's the prophet that's ever present. Truly, Jesus is the true and better Moses. So how do we then apply this during this Advent season? How do we live in light of God sending his son to be our prophet? Well, first, we apply this for our comfort. Loved ones, you have a prophet who is the son of God himself. Whatever circumstances that you find yourself in, Jesus, your prophet, gives you the very words, the living word, the living and active word, the word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, the very words that you need to hear. Are you afflicted? Are you poor? Are you weary? Jesus has words for that. He has words for you. Are you sorrowful? Are you full of anxious? Are you afraid? Jesus has words for that. Have you been lied to, abused? Have you been led astray? Jesus can speak to that. Do you feel lost and confused and ignorant? Jesus can teach you everything that you need to know. God didn't merely send his son into the world to die for our sins, as infinitely precious as that is. He he sent his son into the world to lead us to him, to teach us who God is. And And the scripture says that he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. There's nothing that the living word has left out for you. Secondly, we apply this as a warning. Apart from the teachings of Jesus Christ, no one can be saved. Outside of Christ's words, there's no salvation. When Pharaoh and the Egyptians refused to listen to the prophet Moses, it cost them their lives, but it will cost the reprobate far more than merely their lives for refusing to listen to Christ. Hebrews 12.25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The fallacy that non-Christians believe today is that they don't need the words of Jesus, that they can get along quite well, thank you very much. (laughs) Which, I just respond, look around at the culture today. Does it look like they're getting along quite well, thank you very much? No, it does not. We live in a culture of death, and the reason why our culture is dying is because it has rejected Jesus' life-giving words, and there's no way to get back to life with, without Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. Non Christians turn to to false prophets like Muhammad or the Pope or the president of the Mormon Church or to their political party or to that image that is looking right back at them in the mirror and they think that those words will be enough. They won't be. They can't be. They'll lead you to death. If, If you're in that camp, if you're rejecting the words of Jesus, then I plea with you come to Christ, come to the living word. Come to the prophet, the true prophet whom God sent into the world and he will give you life. Listen and live. Finally, we end with our charge. What is our charge this morning? The Father said it best in Jesus' transfiguration Luke 9, 35, he said from heaven, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's our charge, loved ones. Don't be like the Israelites who rejected the words of Moses. Listen to Christ. Eat up his words. Shape your life after his teachings. Hide what he has said in your heart. Loved ones, there's no better knowledge than the knowledge that Jesus Christ gives. Peter confessed rightly, Lord, you have the words of eternal life, John 6.68. Jesus shows us who the Father is, John 1.18. He tells us the mysteries of the kingdom, Mark 4.11. No one has ever spoke like this man. John 7 46. This is why God sent his spectacular son into the world. This is what Advent is about. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. Let's pray. pray. Oh, Lord, help us, God, to shape our lives around the words of your son that we would not listen to our own words, that we would not listen to the words of our culture, that we would not listen to the words of religious gurus, but, Lord, we would listen to your word, the living word, the word who was with God, the word who was God, who is God. Help us, Lord, to celebrate, Lord, not only Christ's priestly office, but his prophetic office we can find comfort in whatever season that we find ourselves in by simply remembering the words of your son. So help us to that end. Help us, Lord, to point others to the great and true prophet Jesus Christ. Help us to do that with our families. Help us to do that with our fellow co-workers. Help us to do that with our friends. Help us to do that with strangers, that we would tell them about the prophet who is coming to the world. For we prayed in his mighty name. Amen.